From the heart of the Forest City, focusing on the biggest stories in London, this is the Craig Needles Podcast. Now here's your host, Craig Needles. The Craig Needles Podcast here at ClassicRock981.com, LondonNewsToday.ca. We're on your favorite podcast apps as well. And uh, we are talking about housing today. I know we sort of talked about that with, with, with Greenbelt last week, but I want to talk about uh, a new report. The National Housing Accord... And this report has 10 recommendations, and the goal is to build 2 million purpose-built rental units. And to talk about that report with us is uh, Mike Moffat, who, of course, is uh, uh, one of the founding is a founding director with uh, the Place Center at the Smart Prosperity Institute. And he's an economist and has been on this podcast and radio shows that I've done many, many times and thrilled to have him back once again. Mike, thank you for doing this. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. 2 million seems like a lot of homes. How do we get to that number? It's it's absolutely uh, going to be a challenge that uh, the CMHC says that we need 5.8 million homes of all types uh, between now and 2031. Uh, and if you look at sort of the demographic needs, you know, who's coming to the country, uh, you know, who needs housing, we estimate about 2 million of that 5.8 million will need to be uh, rental apartment units. So that is a big, big challenge. There's lots of bottlenecks to getting there, you know, like a lack of uh, lack of skilled trades workers, uh, you know, the, the approvals process needs to uh, be improved. Uh, you know, that we've got taxes and fees that make a lot of good projects unviable. So there's so many different bottlenecks that we believe that uh, there needs to be a coordinated plan. So we, we became the change that we wanted to see and actually put one, uh, a consortium of groups and I put one together for uh, the federal government to, to act as a blueprint to get these homes built. And it's interesting the way we got here as far as this wasn't just, hey, here's what we think. This was asking people who would be responsible for building the homes or getting people into the homes or whatever it happens to be. Hey, what do you think? What can we do? What should we be telling the federal government to do? Yeah, and that that was exactly the genesis of this. I, I think I'd even be on your podcast before and made the comment that, you know what we should do? We should just lock a bunch of really smart people in a room and, and get them to solve this, not let them out until they do. Uh, and then after a while, again, we we kind of saw that we should be the change that we wanted to see. So that's exactly what we did in Ottawa about eight eight weeks ago. And there were three of us leading this, uh, myself, uh, Tim Richter from the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness, and Michael Brooks, uh, who runs an organization called RealPack. So they're a big uh, association of companies who operate and invest in all kinds of real estate from uh, from apartment buildings to malls. So we brought them together and we got a number of other academics and people in the social space, along with some builders and developers, uh, order some coffee and some donuts and some sandwiches and uh, basically worked really hard to come with a, up with a plan that we could all agree with, that the social sectors, the community foundations uh, could see themselves in this, as well as the builders, developers and and investors. So so that's what we did here. And our focus was on the rental market and our focus was on the the, the federal government, that, that we believe um, all orders of government play a role here, but that we need to see fer- federal leadership. And which was something, again, that we decided eight weeks ago. And we've had a bit of serendipity that uh, the federal role in all of this has uh, only, you know, gotten more attention in the last eight weeks. So, you know, we are somewhat the, the beneficiaries of good timing. 
Uh, yeah, so we have the prime minister saying housing is not primarily a, a federal responsibility. Now, uh, that's something that supporters of the prime minister have said, well, it's taken out of context. Uh, if you watch the rest of the clip, here's what he said, blah, blah, blah. I, I personally don't care about that. If you're the prime minister and we have such a big housing crisis in this country right now, don't say that combination of words in order because you're going to get dunked on for it. And he sort of led himself up to that. Uh, so you've got some recommendation here for what the federal government can do, the levers they do have that uh, may or may not be primarily a federal responsibility, depending on who you talk to. What are your 10 recommendations? What do you want to see get done? Yeah, so the, the 10 re recommendations fall into six uh, broad buckets because we see basically six challenges here uh, happening altogether. So we have recommendations, the, the first of which is to address a coordination problem that, you know, right now our, our housing policy is disconnected from the po policies that uh, affect population growth, like, uh, uh, you know, the big growth in international students that we see uh, here in London. So you know, we're, we're act, calling for coordination and, and calling for a national industrial strategy on, on housing. Uh, we have a big issue with just the ability uh, to, to build enough homes. So uh, we're calling for a, a work por uh, workforce uh, planning strategy to get, you know, not just electricians and plumbers, but also, you know, the people at the municipal level or at the CMHC who, who handle approvals, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, we're looking for that. On uh, the viability piece, uh, so there are a lot of great projects in in London as well that uh, that builders and developers have come up with that um, that have been approved by you know by uh, the the city of London, but they're not getting built. And one of the reasons why they're not getting built is they just don't make economic sense at today's interest rates and with everything that's going on. So we recommend some tax changes that the federal government can make, like eliminating the GST on purpose-built rentals, uh, some uh, tax tweaks they can make to the corporate income tax code uh, to put in some uh, incentives to build apartment buildings that, that we had back in the 1960s. Uh, there's some financing and uh, changes that uh, in insurance changes we're, rec we're recommending of the CMHC. So there's uh, three of the buckets here. Should I, should I do the other three? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, if you if you want to keep going, just uh, just keep yeah, going because people need to hear it. And by the uh, way, they can find this all at nationalhousingaccord.ca. That's where I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, so nationalhousingaccord.ca. So those are the, the first three uh, broad buckets. So uh, next one is um, is productivity. Um, that, you know, I know many of your listeners actually may know my dad. He's, uh, he was a sheet metal worker, uh, who, uh, did, uh, duct work in apartment buildings back in the sixties and seventies. And his job probably hasn't changed much in 50 years, despite the fact that we don't build anything else that way. So we recommend a number of, of changes to make the sector more productive, uh, new building methods, um, that kind of thing. Next is permissions. You know, we talk. You, you you talk about a lot, and you've had guests talk a, a lot about about uh, permissions at the municipal level, like the, the mm -hmm. zoning and approvals and parking minimums and all that. But that also applies to the federal level. Like for instance, there are thousands of uh, applications for apartment buildings with the the federal CMHC that are waiting for finance and insurance uh, insurance approvals that are sitting on the CMHC's desk. If the CMHC would just invest a little bit of resources, you know, just like we saw with the passport offices, we could get a lot of great projects out the door and, uh, and uh, you know, start getting some shovels in the ground. Um, one of the things we recommend is, is another throwback that back in the 1940s and early 1950s, 
the CMHC had a catalog of pre-approved designs for a lot of wartime bungalows and things like that. We're suggesting they bring that back, but for various types of apartment buildings. And what that would do is that builders and developers, and, and they could be for-profits or not-for-profits, if they choose one of those designs, they would get fast-tracked for CMHC approval because they would the CMHC would have already approved that design. They wouldn't have to do it again. So just some tweaks like that that we think can be transformative. And then finally, big piece is social housing. Um, we have about 665,000 uh, social housing units of a variety of types across uh, across Canada. We're calling on that uh, for double uh, to be doubled, which would bring us up to the OECD average for for social housing. Bring us from about three and a half percent to seven percent. And there's a lot of uh, financing tools and, and mechanisms that we put in the report to to allow that to happen. So I know I, I fire hose a lot uh, a lot of the, your podcast listeners, but I think it just shows that there's no silver bullet to this. That it's going to take yeah. three orders of government tackling you know the six dimensional problem um, to to start getting shovels in the ground and start getting some uh, rental units built. So there, there's a few ways I want to I want to look at this. We'll get to the political in a second, but for now, uh, you had a bunch of people who, in in some cases, in some instances, people could argue that they would have opposing views on certain issues or differing views on how we get there. But you got them to agree with stuff like this. What were the conversations like that got us to that point where we said, okay, yeah, we like these recommendations. We all think this is where we should be going. Yeah, and and that, again, that was the genesis of it. That a, num a number of groups, and and myself included, I have to include this uh, in it. That we would spend a lot of time in the media and in social media, kind of chirping at each other. Um, and yes. it, it just finally, yeah, which happens. Everybody's seen my Twitter account, and we just sort of realized that. Well, wait a sec. We actually probably have more in common. Uh, th than we think. And if we could, you know, stop fighting each other on, on social media um, and then podcasts and so on and actually work together, we might actually be able to accomplish something. So that was the genesis of it. And uh, Tim at the Canadian Alliance to, uh, Alliance to End Homelessness and Michael Brooks at RealPAC, you know, really took leadership on this. I, I was brought in a little bit later um, to do that. And I have to admit that morning, uh, when I went into that boardroom in Ottawa and there were 20 people there who, you know, spent a lot of time, uh, arguing with each other on, on social media, I was a little bit concerned, but, you know, after about the third cup of coffee or so, and uh, once we d dug into those sandwiches, we really did find that we had a lot more in common than we thought. And we could find common ground and, you know, not every group is going to necessarily love every recommendation but they're all something that every group who is signed on can can agree to. So let's talk about what the federal government needs to do then in the short term here, because from a political perspective, right now they're down, just about every poll that comes in, they're down nine or 10 points. And if you look at some of the demographics where they're really getting crushed, it's oftentimes, you know, 18 to 34, 25 to 34, those types of demographics where uh, this housing problem, that's the biggest issue for them far and away. So clearly what the federal government has or has not done here, and clearly what provincial and municipal governments have or have not done here is impacting Canadians in that age group. And we're seeing it show up in polling. Yeah, we, we really are. And I, I think... Until recently, I think there's been hesitancy from uh, politicians at, at all three orders of government to be too bold here that, you know, 
with the concern being that, well, if, if we do too much on housing, that might upset existing homeowners who are older and, and more likely to vote. But I, I feel like that that discourse is, has changed a bit or, or those assumptions are starting to break, particularly when we see homeowners who would like to be able to downsize and can find nothing to downsize it, or we find uh, homeowners that have twenty uh, something, you know, living on living on the, in the basement on on the couch, or their 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 kids had to move far uh, far away to find housing, and now grandma and grandpa never get to see the grandkids. So I think this is affecting people of all ages, and I, I really believe the the. Uh, the discourse has changed and there's room to be bold. And one example I would give is the city of Toronto um, a couple months ago allowed by law, any single family uh, housing lot can have up to four housing units. You can have a quadplex by right. If you'd asked me 18 months ago, I said that will never happen. You know, that just the, the, the you know, the Toronto homeowners will, will absolutely scream if anybody tried that. And now here we are. So I really feel like the, um, the, the the policy window has shifted. And this creates opportunities for both the government, whether they be federal or provincial, to go bolder. But it also creates opportunities for the oppos- any of the opposition parties who really uh, want to take ownership of this issue. They absolutely can. And they need to. Uh, and that's the the part that I don't understand about this just from pure political analysis is they need to take up some of that space when it is just at the very least talking about, hey, you can't find a place to live. We're going to help you with that. And I sent out a tweet and I think you were tweeting about this on the weekend as well. Pierre Polyev came out with a video. He was uh, standing near an apartment where I think it was in Calgary, where he and his dad had lived for a bit and talked about how close it was to transit and said, hey, we're going to say to municipalities, we're not funding your transit projects unless you are building building high-density housing around transit stations, which I, I know some municipalities do it, but some aren't. And I thought, okay, that seems like a pretty good piece of policy. We need that high-intensity, uh, high-density housing in those areas. But I, of course, got all sorts of people in my mention saying, oh, Pierre Polyev, he's terrible, blah, blah, blah. I just kept responding. Why doesn't the federal government say stuff like this, even if they're intending on doing stuff like this? Just say it, because right now he's taking up all the oxygen on this issue. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I thought it was a fantastic video. And I had the same reaction too. you know, people are saying, oh, well, you know, why are you being nice to Pierre Polyev? Because, you know, this other thing about the World Economic Forum or right. whatever. Yep. And, and, and I made the same point that, that you did. I'm like, no, the point isn't to praise Polyev, but it's to question why we aren't hearing this either from the government or the NDP. Like, it is surprising to me that it is the right, uh, you know, the political right in this country who's talking about building affordable ha- uh, housing units by transit so young people don't have to own cars. <laughs> like, if you're yeah, progressive right. and, and you've lost that message, then I, I just don't understand what you're what you're doing. So I think there is a big window of opportunity here. I think, uh, you know, right now at the federal level, I think Polyev is owning it more than the other parties are. But, you know, I think there's still some skepticism out there. So I still think there is an opportunity for the NDP, the Liberals, the Greens, whoever, uh, to really uh, take ownership of this. We should play in communities where you don't necessarily have to own a car was considered sort of a wild position when Jack Layton first became leader of the NDP. Uh, What was it for the NDP to have? Now it's the conservatives who are talking about it. Nobody else. So like things have changed a little bit. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I really don't understand how uh, how the center and left dropped the ball on that. Because uh, uh, things have changed. That Yeah, I couldn't. Could you imagine those words coming out of Stephen Harper's mouth? Never. Uh, I, I certainly cannot. So I, I just don't get what the opposition parties do here to sort of try and take this back, I suppose. Uh, uh, because I think there are a lot of Canadians who are, you know, in that age group we were talking about. They're in their, their 20s or their early 30s who would love to own a home someday or even have an apartment they can afford to rent near where it is they work, or at the very least, with not without some sort of crazy commute. And those people are looking for reasons to vote, I would think, for the Liberals or the NDP. So what do you think those parties can do to provide those reasons? Well, I, I think we have a blueprint here. It doesn't, you know, we are just focused on the rental side. So I think there are there is more to do on, on the ownership side. And on the on the political question, you know, are we going to get uh, you know enough houses built before the or apartment buildings built before the next election? Probably not, and no. that's you know. But I don't think that's how success is going to be defined. I think if the Liberals or NDP came out with a significant plan that that people uh, believe in, um, that is going to make a difference and say, okay, you know what, the, the, these guys are are really pushing things forward, and if there are you know, essentially, if there are issues in the housing market, it's, you know, it's either the province or municipalities or or, or someone else, like almost make it somebody else's problem. Um, so I, I think that's what they what they need to do. It's a point that uh, conservative critic uh, Corey Tanek has, has made quite a few times in, in the media and a variety of podcasts that the two biggest groups of swing voters right now are basically people under the age of 40 and new Canadians. Um, and the number one issue for both of those groups is, is a lack of housing. So the, the, the federal and I would argue provincial parties really need to take ownership of this. Absolutely. And you mentioned uh, newcomers there. And, and this is in your report, too. Uh, student housing is a big part of where we're seeing the lack of places for people to go here. And you've tweeted quite a bit about that, but it's right in your first recommendation. You know, uh, the plan should also include a blueprint to fund deeply affordable housing, cooperative housing and supportive housing, along with seniors housing and student residences. Uh, we don't have enough student residences, especially if you want to keep importing students from elsewhere in the world, which is great for the bottom line if you're running a college or university in Ontario or British Columbia, wherever it happens to be. But where are these folks going to live? Because they can't live in mom and dad's basement. Yeah, and and this is the and this is why we need a, a plan because if you talk to the colleges and universities and ask them like why aren't you building enough student residences, you will hear one of uh, would one of two things. Uh, the, the first is you know just they don't have the money right. That the, the, there's a lot of upfront uh, expenses, and the second thing you might hear is like well look we don't know what's going to happen in the future with with international students right that. Um, right. You know, we've seen this big growth, but that could end at any time. And we don't want to build a, a big residence because that's a 30 to 50 year expense if uh, the number of international students is going to decline like two years from now. Well, I think there's a solution to both of those. So to the latter problem, that's just a planning one that if the federal government and provincial government can get together and go, OK, this is our plan for international enrollments. And this is how many visas we're going to give out uh, over the next five to 10 years. You create some certainty. On the first one, 
um, there are some funding mechanisms we can use. And this is a big theme of the report that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, we've been here before and we've solved some of these problems. Back during the financial crisis, I think we all remember those big uh, Harper era economic action plan signs with the blue and green arrows. Uh, back yep. then, there was there, yeah, uh, I, I, very I, I clearly in front of all sorts of different projects. Yeah, they were everywhere. They, they were everywhere. And in front of they, we had a bunch in front of Western um, and there were a number of buildings built on campuses. It wasn't so much student residences back then. It was a lot of classrooms and labs and uh, the Ivy building at Western, for example. And those buildings all had uh, joint funding, depending on what was built. The, the programs were a bit different, but you could think of it as essentially being like a third the federal government, a third the province and a third higher ed. So there's nothing preventing the federal government from starting an application program and saying, okay, you know what, we're going to put $500 million into student housing, but we need the provinces to match that, and we need the colleges and universities to match that. So not only are they, you know, funding some buildings, but they're kind of, uh, you know, making sure that the provinces and the colleges and universities themselves play a role here with this with this three matching uh, system. So. That's a, we did it before 15 years ago. It worked. We can do it again for student housing. Yeah, I, I think it needs to be done because uh, when we see all these stories and there was a, a fire in London a little while ago, and you and I have, have discussed this before, where uh, the fire breaks out and everyone tells the story to the media about how oh, I was lucky to get out of there. Oh, how many people were living in this, you know, what was originally designed as a three bedroom split level? Oh, 12 like if if we do continue to have a lacking number of spaces for these international students, they're going to have unscrupulous landowners who are going to shove more and more people into those spots. So it, I think that's a key one that we've got to solve here if we really want to tackle this and the, the seniors one as well. Yeah, and, and, and that's a really great example because it, it shows how one housing issue can affect uh, affect others. So um, we are seeing, you know, we are seeing these these tragic situations of all of these three bedroom homes that are are being turned into, you know, overcrowded student residences, um, which is not a, a good situation for anyone, but you know, is is understandable given the, the lack of student housing. But what that's also doing is taking those three bedroom starter homes off the market. You know, that those used to be 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, those used to be um, homes for families. And we're starting to see that in places in London that we never saw it before. So I grew up in the uh, Hamilton and Gore area out in the East End. Um, and we're starting to see some of those homes in that area out in Fairmont, out near Tweedsmere, uh, getting turned into uh, essentially uh, student housing for Fanshawe students. And, and what that's doing is that's, you know, preventing the next generation of uh, families from from buying homes there. You know, it was a great place when my parents bought it in the early 70s. It would be a great place to raise a family today. But now first time home buyers are having to uh, having to bid against investors who are turning these into into student housing. So it just causes the whole system to break. 
yeah, uh, it's uh, there, there, there used to be these graduated homes. Okay, you're going to live here for a bit, then you're going to move into this spot because a family's going to take your spot after you've done raising your family. And that's just not the way it's gone for a variety of reasons. Uh, two things I want to ask you about, Mike, before we wrap up here. Uh, one, the homelessness prevention and housing benefit. You talk about creating that and you say that it would provide relief for uh, uh, up to 385,000 Canadians who are renting right now and at risk of homelessness. How would that work and what's your vision for that when you put that in your recommendations? Yeah, this is this is really important that eight of our 10 recommendations are about housing supply, about how we build all kinds of housing supply from from market rates to 665,000 uh, affordable social housing units of, of a variety of different types. But the final two recommendations recognize that that's going to take a while to happen. And in the meantime, um, there are a lot of people who are in precarious situations that are on the edge of falling into homelessness. So it's what the what the two fi- uh, programs would do would be to provide um, cash benefits to the most marginalized of renters so they don't fall into homelessness because that's the way that we're going to have to solve the homelessness crisis is twofold. That first of all, we're going to have to find places for the existing homelessness to live. But the second thing we're going to have to do is turn off the tap, right? We're going to have to make sure that those at the risk of becoming homeless don't fall into homelessness. So we need this kind of two-part strategy. And, you know, this is this recommendation comes from the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness and a, a variety of other social groups. And I think it's a really interesting well-designed idea that that provides targeted funding to the lowest of income renters to make sure, again, that they can, uh, they don't fall into homelessness. But it also, and this is an important part of the design, we call it a portable benefit so that if that person needs to move to another apartment unit, let's say they got a new job, we don't want to lock them into their existing units. You know, we want them to be able to, uh, you know, progress uh, through life. So this benefit would allow that that person who's living in one unit to, you know, move across town, which would allow them to get a new job and get some financial stability. So these are really important programs that, that we're hopeful that the federal government will adopt. Yeah, and that's one. And, and I think we've discussed this too. Uh, I think that I have options as a renter is going to do more for the quality of rental units than uh, hiring a few dozen bylaw inspectors ever could. Yeah. Um, so uh, Kel Salem, who uh, is uh, a developer who, who's building that uh, big indigenous uh, development out in Vancouver, he had a line. I was on a panel with him a few months ago, and he had a, a fantastic line that uh, you know, nothing gives renters more power and security than a 7% vacancy rate. Uh, and I think there's so much truth to that. So do we need enforcement of rules? Absolutely we do. But one of the biggest things that we need is to correct the power imbalance between uh, renters and rentees. And what's happening now is that uh, people who who have these buildings know that if they're uh, you know, if their renter leave, they, they could find somebody tomorrow, right? So that gives them a lot of ability when the renter knows that like, okay, well, if I have to move out of this spot, I might not be able to find something else. So we need to correct that power imbalance. And the only way we're going to do that is if we have a lot more vacancies in the system. Yeah. And at the, at the very least have the vacancy number not be somewhere near zero, you know, because that's basically what it is. If, uh, 
uh, depending on how you sort and which community you're in, but it's, it's pretty close to zero for a lot of them. So, uh, yeah, those two, uh, those two recommendations you make at the end there would definitely, uh, would definitely help with that. Mike, anything else that you want to get to or make sure we talk about before we wrap up our chat here? Well, I just, uh, I, I think I have to uh, promote the website. So it's called uh, National Housing Accord, uh, .ca. So check it out, check out the recommendations. And I know there's a number of, of groups uh, in, in London, community foundations and so on. Uh, if you read the report and like it, we are looking for endorsements. We're trying to grow this tent, try to grow it into a movement. So uh, check out the report. And if you'd like to endorse it, uh, we'd love to have you on board. And the other thing I'll say is that if you are, um, if you got to this from a, an article on LondonNewsToday.ca, the report's going to be linked there. And if you're listening to this on one of the apps, uh, uh, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, whatever you're on, there's going to be a link to the report at NationalHousingAccord.ca right in the description. So you'll be able to, to find it nice and easy. So it'll be right there for you. Well, fantastic. I, I really appreciate uh, you promoting this. Uh, I, I think this could be transformative. Uh, so uh, we've got the plan and now let's just keep pushing it to uh, so we can get the political will to get some shovels in the ground. Mike, thank you so much for this. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. That's Mike Moffat, who, of course, is an economist and he is with the Smart Prosperity Institute and they have that new report out. We're just talking about it. It's the National Housing Accord, 10 federal recommendations to build 2 million purpose-built rental units. And you can see it in the description of this podcast or linked at londonnewstoday.ca. That's all the time we have for this edition of the Craig Needles Podcast. We'll be back with a new episode on Friday. The Craig Needles Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. 